Well, good morning. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Michelle McKeska. I am the college pastor here at First Colony. Mike is up at Camp Blessing, um, so he is currently with Spencer, who I'm sure you've heard many stories of uh, at the pulpit, so we are happy that he is up there. Um, so for a while we have been in the Acts series, um, and for this past Mother's Day, we went through the heartwarming tale of Ananias and Sapphira. So uh, I thought that maybe for Father's Day, happy Father's Day, uh, that we would go through a bit lighter texts, like the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> so uh, it really does give you the warm fuzzies. Uh, for those of you who don't know, it is a book that states again and again, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Aren't you glad you're here this morning? <laughs> All right, let's open up to Ecclesiastes. Now, this is an enigmatic book, and it has been to many scholars who wonder, why is this here? Why is this text in our Bible? And they are not the first to ask this question. Um, but I do believe that one of the reasons that we find this text in our scriptures is precisely because it deals with the issue of meaning. Uh, you and I might use the term purpose. So when someone asks the question, why am I here? They're not just asking a question about their existence, why am I breathing, but what am I here for? What is my purpose? One only has to look at the millions of copies sold of a purpose-driven life to know that this is a pressing issue in our society today. Well, luckily for us, we have an entire book dedicated to this issue. Where do we find purpose in a fallen and broken world? Now, there are some other things that we need to know before we dive into Ecclesiastes. And the first is that there are two speakers. There are two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes. And we have to understand that if we are to fully understand this text. The first voice is the voice of the teacher. Most modern translations will refer to him as a teacher, but the ESV, which you have in uh, the chairs below you, uh, will refer to him as preacher. So I am going to take a bit of an issue with the ESV translation just in that area. It's okay. <laughs> it's still a good translation. Uh, but I want to talk about why I'm choosing the term teacher as opposed to preacher. So we're going to go through a bit of Hebrew. Don't chew me out just yet. Um, so in the Hebrew, okay, the word that is being used here is kohelet. Say that with me. Kohelet. Very nice. Okay. Uh, and it means one who gathers people around him. So, the idea is of a philosophy or a wisdom teacher who's gathering his students around to listen to what he says. Now, the reason that ESV and other translations render it as preacher is because they, they view this like a church gathering. Like, this has a religious connotation. Uh, but with the ancient Israelites, their minds don't separate religious and secular issues like we do. So anytime they gather together, of course God is going to be discussed, because we are Israelites. This is what we do. So I think a better term would be teacher, which is why I will be from now on calling him teacher, or Kohelet. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. Now, the second speaker uh, is the voice that we find in the beginning and the end of the book. And he is going to talk about the teacher to his son. See? I knew we'd tie it into Father's Day. Yeah, there we go. So, 
Uh, this is very standard in wisdom literature. If you read the book of Proverbs, you will see over and over again, my son, listen to my teaching. It is all about giving this information to future generations. So instead of going through specific Proverbs, this narrator is going to be going through Kohelet's entire work and commenting upon it to his son. Okay, so, speaking about the teacher, we need to ask ourselves, what is his message? And is the message of the teacher the same as the message of the book? Okay, I'm going to say that there are two different messages right up front. These two messages do not contrast each other, but they're held in tension. Uh, And he does not try to resolve that tension, and we're not going to either. So, if we are going to understand the teacher's message, I can sum it up as follows. Life sucks. (laughs) And then you die. (laughs) He's a cheery guy. So, um, he is going to say that a few things in life render that life meaningless. And the first is death. Okay? So flip open to Ecclesiastes 12. Uh, I was in biology class, and for those of you who don't know me, I hate science. I mean, I really. It's great for those people that like science, but I was in biology, so I was already miserable. And my biology teacher goes on to say that human beings reach their, their height of perfection, their apex, at the age of 18. And after that, it's all downhill from there. So that was a bright and cheery lesson that morning. And I was like, great. So at 18, that's the height of my physical capabilities and perfection. And then after that, we're losing cells. We're languishing. Okay? So I'm on the other side of this. Most of us are on the other side of this. You 18-year-olds out there, enjoy it. (laughs) Okay? So in chapter 12, he is going to talk about the process of growing old. And he's going to compare it to a house that, like our bodies, over time languishes and decays. So chapter 12, starting in verse 1, says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light And the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the the doors on the streets are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails. Because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So what we see is that Kohelet is using cosmic or apocalyptic imagery to describe the process of growing old. Um, because to him, this is what renders life meaningless. So you have some images here, the silver cord being snapped, the golden bowl broken, things that are precious, which at death are destroyed. 
Um, unless we read a positive reading into man going to his eternal home, for Kohelet, that is not heaven. That is the grave. And in verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This is a reversal of Genesis 2, when God forms man from the dust and breathes life into him. He says that death is a tearing of that process. It's an utter destruction of what God has made. The spirit goes back to him. The almond tree blossoms, the graying of the hair. The grinder sees, for they are few, losing the teeth. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. Those of us with some reading glasses, we understand that. So he goes on to say, and he uses these allegorical thrusts, that like a home that eventually grows old, so do our bodies. And this angers him. This frustrates him. This renders life meaningless for him. So there are two other things that are also going to render life meaningless to the teacher. And the first is injustice. So if you'll flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 15. We're going to be going all over Ecclesiastes today to kind of get an overall picture of the book. In verse 15, he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Okay, so he says, The righteous man, who is supposed to reap reward, who is supposed to gain blessing and benefit, dies in his righteousness, dies unjustly. And the wicked man actually prolongs his life by his wickedness. He observes this. He sees this. In chapter 9, he's going to say, in verse 11, Again I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. So he is brought up in wisdom, and wisdom literature is all about order. Order in creation, we see that there is order. Order in society, this is the way that society should run. So he is trained up in this, he knows this. But then he looks out into the world, and he sees that system is broken. He says, that's a great theory. And in a utopian society, it would work. But we're living in a fallen world. And I see the righteous being punished and the wicked going out scot-free. We see this, right, in our own justice system. This is one of the things that we lament about, that the good guys end up getting framed and the bad guys get off on a loophole. We see that the system is broken. And he's upset and angry about this. He is also hitting on another uh, terminology or method, and this is found in Deuteronomy. So in the book of Deuteronomy, you have Moses kind of preaching through the law, saying, remember these things. We have been given the law. This is good for us. This is life. These are not arbitrary rules. If you follow it, a society would be better if we didn't kill each other. Okay? And so then at the very end, he says, here are the blessings. 
for those who follow the law. And here are the curses for those who don't. Because if we follow the law, we achieve and attain life. Kohelet's going to say, that's a great theory. But I see faithful Israelites who are hurt and who become victims. And they've done nothing but righteousness. We hear Job echoing in our minds here. Now, injustice renders life meaningless. The third and final thing that is going to render life meaningless to the teacher is going to require some additional knowledge about wisdom literature. So wisdom is a lot like comedy. It's all about the timing. Okay? So you don't have to flip there, but there is um, an interesting verse, two verses, in Proverbs 26. You have Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. You can go back there and look at it. I'm not making this up. So in verse 4, you have the man who says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become a fool yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become wise in his own eyes. So... If I am reading the proverb, do I answer the fool according to his folly? Do I not answer the fool according to his folly? Do I use shame or wisdom? Which one? Well, it depends on what is the appropriate time to use that proverb. It's not just about memorizing and understanding the proverb itself, but having discernment, having wisdom, being trained up to know who's the fool in front of you. And should I shame him or should I not encourage him? Which one is it? It requires an understanding of the appropriate time. Now again, Kohelet is a wisdom teacher. He gets this. He understands that there is an appropriate time for things. And if you flip over to chapter 3, probably one of the most famous texts in Ecclesiastes, made famous by the birds. You all know what I'm talking about? Getting there? To everything turn. Okay, I'm I'm done singing. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Okay, he's going to start to show us here are the appropriate times for things. In verse 1 he says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. So he says, yeah, there is an appropriate time for things. And if we just stop at verse 8, We finally get the warm fuzzies of Ecclesiastes. Oh, yes. There is a proper time for things. It does not give him the warm fuzzies, however, because he continues on in verse 9. This still frustrates him. Why? Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful or appropriate in its time. Also, he has put eternity, or the sense of the appropriate time, into man's heart. Yet, he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So he's made everything appropriate. There is a proper time for things. However, we haven't been let in on it. We don't understand when is the proper time. Is there any control that we have over the time to be born? Can I say, I want to harvest in winter? Because that's when I want to pluck what I've planted. We don't have control over it. 
We don't, we aren't let in. There's a barrier between us and full understanding. And I can say as a student, um, when you dedicate your life to the study of something, when you narrow down into this field that you really want to understand, you truly want to grasp it, there comes a point when you realize, I will never be able to read everything. I will never be able to read the hundreds and thousands of papers and documents that have been written over centuries on this topic. And it's frustrating. It's depressing. It makes you feel small, which is probably good. We've got a lot of arrogant scholars out there. So, you know, it gives us some perspective. We cannot understand it all. And this frustrates the teacher because there's a barrier between him and full understanding. So the third thing that's going to render life meaningless is an inability to understand the times. An inability to understand the times. And all the agnostics said amen. Right? Like, we can't know this. There's nothing we can know. We share some things in common with the agnostics. Okay? We also believe in revelation. That's going to differentiate us. Um, But this is going to lead, if you look back in chapter 7, he is then going to recommend a certain kind of response. And he is going to give some advice uh, that you will never hear in any other book of the Bible. Okay? So chapter 7, verse 16. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. So he says, okay. So we say that it be a faithful Israelite, follow the law, be righteous, follow this path. But death, injustice, and an inability to understand the times have rendered life meaningless. So don't kill yourself. All right? So I don't know that I'm going to take his word for that or his advice, but he's also going to recommend what we will call the carpe diem passages. Eat, drink, be merry. Enjoy the time you got. Okay? So, throughout the book, uh, we're going to see that the teacher is going to look at different areas of life, maybe to find some meaning. Um, So, he does this by looking at money, pleasure, work, wisdom, and relationships. Um, He's going to do this for the first few chapters, but because of death and injustice, he's going to conclude meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So flip over to chapter 2. He is going to take a look at wisdom. Being a wisdom teacher, you would think he would find some value in what he does. Starting in verse 12, he says, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? 
And I said in my heart that this is also vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now he is going to say here that wisdom does have some value. It has value over folly. But death, which is the event he's talking about, renders it meaningless. Now here I need to bring up that uh, the teacher is meant to be associated with King Solomon. Uh, now there are scholars who are going to debate whether the teacher actually was Solomon, okay, the author of this book being Solomon, or if he is being associated with Solomon for theological reasons. We don't have to solve that issue this morning. If you want to know my thoughts, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, but what we do know is that there's no question that we are supposed to view the teacher as Solomon. Think of Solomon when you think of the teacher. Why? Okay. Because some of us might be tempted to say, okay, Kohelet, so you're saying that no amount of money, no amount of pleasure will ever make you feel that life has meaning. But I bet you that Bill Gates is not thinking this. I bet you he's sitting pretty, ruling his world, creating more PCs out there. And, uh, you know, I think he's a doing okay. Um, or, you know, Hugh Hefner. <laughs> you know, I, I think he's probably, I think he's probably happy. I don't think he's saying, life is meaningless, what's the point? Or, if I only had more money, if I only had a career that I enjoyed, if only my kids would behave, <laughs> then I would be happy. Then I would find meaning in life. Using Solomon as Kohelet is a blinding critique to this mentality. Here's what I mean by that. So what we know about Solomon is that during his reign, the kingdom of Israel was at its height of wealth and power. He had more money than anybody. Okay? Um, he also, very famously, is known for having 700 wives and 300 mistresses. So Hugh Hefner, kind of a rookie. <laughs> I mean, really? 700 wives. Checkmate. <laughs> I, I think I have uh, enough pleasure to, to go around. So um, he's also known for his wisdom, one of the wisest kings in recorded history. But here's something else that we know about Solomon. He eventually tears the kingdom apart because of the sons he couldn't keep in check, because of his idolatry. The man who had everything at the end of his life had destroyed himself, his family, and the kingdom. Solomon is the poster boy for meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. There is no fill in the blank that you can say, if only I had this. Solomon says, no. I can tell you, that is not where meaning is found. Nothing under the sun is going to satisfy that hole inside of you. Nothing is going to fill that void. 
So why do we still look for it there? Why do we still look for it there? Kohelet brings us a message of warning. That money, pleasure, beauty, all of these things don't bring happiness and meaning. If it did, wouldn't we see a lot more well-adjusted celebrities? <laughs> I mean, really. Seriously, how, how do they respond with all of the wonderful things they've been given? They still seem to be depressed individuals. Soren Kierkegaard defined sin as building your self-worth in anything other than God. Um, so, so what do we really place our value in? In our stuff? In our job? In our intellect? In our success? There's an easy way to find out. Just look at our pocketbook. Just look at our Chase account. What are we spending our money on? What are we spending our time on? And I think if we look, we find that we're all guilty of this. I know I am. Um, but when we read Kohelet, we can't ignore the fact that we've put our hope in these things, despite what we say to the contrary. That the idols of money and power have taken root in our hearts. That we are guilty of saying, if only I had fill in the blank, I'd be okay. Life might have some meaning. That we're trying to be satisfied with things found under the sun. So we've heard the message from the teacher. But what is the message of the book? Flip to Ecclesiastes 12. Starting in verse 8. He's going to sum up what the teacher says in like six words. He says, thanks for giving us the really long book. I can sum up what you're going to say. Vanity of vanities, says the teacher. All is vanity. There you go. Besides being wise, the teacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The teacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of flesh. Can I get an amen? Okay, the end of the matter. This is very abrupt in the Hebrew. He's like, enough of this stuff. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So the narrator is evaluating evaluating the teacher for his son. And he surprisingly says, he's 100% right. You know what, this guy? His words are upright and they are true. If we observe life in the teacher's parameters under the sun, what we see out there, we will see a fallen world where even faithful Israelites can't catch a break. That life, for lack of a better word, sucks. And then... You die. Now what is interesting here is that the narrator is not going to contrast or negate the teacher. But what he will do is he's going to place what Kohelet says in a broader perspective. 
he's going to open up the parameters a bit to what I would call an above-the-sun mentality, okay? The heavenly sphere where God is. And what does he say? Fear God. Get in right relationship with God. Keep the commandments. Maintain that relationship. This is the whole duty of man. And live in the light of the coming judgment. Interesting. So we see very clearly that the narrator does not think that this life is all there is. That death and injustice don't have the final say. Even though to the teacher and to everyone else out there, yeah, it looks like it. It looks like the bad guy wins. And it's not that great being the good guy. But he says, live in the light of the coming judgment. Yes, being a faithful Israelite doesn't spare us from sorrow. Be a faithful Israelite anyway. Be faithful regardless. So if meaning cannot be found under the sun, meaning must be found somewhere beyond the sun, beyond what we can merely see and observe. And we believe as Christians that it is found in the light and revelation of Jesus. Um, So in trying to find a New Testament perspective or voice on the book of Ecclesiastes, ideally, we would find a place where Ecclesiastes is quoted in the New Testament. Shocker, none of the New Testament authors chose this inspiring book to quote in the New Testament. I don't know why. Um, But we do find some similar ideas, like how to live as God's people in a fallen world. So if you will, flip to Romans 8. This is the last place we're going to flip to. Here in Romans, Paul is obviously addressing the church in Rome, and he is going to talk about this idea of a world intention. So starting in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. So Paul says, creation was subjected to what? This is not rhetorical. Futility. Yes. Okay, does that ring a bell? Maybe what we've been talking about. He's observed that creation seems to... um, lack meaning, seems to um, be all for naught, that it was subjected to futility. Now, interestingly enough, the Greek writers of the Greek Old Testament, okay, so the, sorry, the Hebrew writers of the Greek Old Testament are going to translate the Hebrew word hevel, which is vanity, to the same Greek word that Paul uses here. So perhaps, now I don't know this, Perhaps Paul does have in mind the Ecclesiastes critique as he's writing to Christians who are experiencing suffering, who are trying to be faithful in a world that is broken. So Paul also acknowledges, along with the narrator, that the world is in tension with what we hope the world will become. But there's a crucial difference. 
between Paul and our Old Testament writer. And that is the historical event of the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus. That through Jesus, God became enfleshed and dwelt among us. That God subjected himself to the futility of the world, to the injustice that he experienced abandonment from his followers, rejection from his people, and despair, all for you and me. That Jesus lived in the tension of a fallen world that he's trying to heal and mend, and he got angry about it. And he was moved to tears by it. And through it all, remained obedient, remained faithful. Philippians 2 would say that he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. He subjected himself to the futility and injustice of the world. Verse 22. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So we know that the death of Jesus was not the end of the story. We know, we have the advantage of knowing, unlike Kohelet, that death is not the final word. And because of that, we can affirm that while we live in a broken world, God, through Jesus, has started to mend it. That we hope for not just the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, but the redemption of the entire creation, no longer subjected to futility, no longer vain. And hope is not something we can observe and see. It requires a different sense, the sense of faith. We trust and we hope that despite what we see in our fallen and broken world, that God has come to redeem and restore. Beyond the sun, we find our meaning beyond the sun. And we are obedient in the meantime. We remain faithful as we live in the tension of a fallen world that God has started to heal. And we trust. We trust, despite what we see around us, that God really is working for the good of those who love him. So yeah, sometimes being a faithful Christian does not spare us from sorrow. Paul and the narrator are going to say, be faithful anyway and trust. Fear God, keep his commandments, and live in the light of his return. Let's pray. God, we know that we continually place our value and our worth in things that have no meaning. We ask that you would use um, your words from Gohelet that they would... They would goad us um, and lead us into conviction and reveal to us places where we have not um, given to you, God. 
where we have set our value in this instead of your son, instead of being your children, God. I ask that you would help us to persevere with patience as we live in a fallen world, that you would help us to remain faithful by reminding us of your faithful son. It's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen.